Welcome to the Test Podagogy podcast. How does early mathematical ability develop? What role do early years practitioners have in that process of development? This week, we're asking those questions and more to Professor Camilla Gilmore. She's Professor of Mathematical Cognition at Loughborough University and the co-director of the Loughborough Centre for Mathematical Cognition. Camilla, thank you for joining me. Thanks, it's nice to be here. Um, so number is, is sort of the poor cousin of literacy in, in early years a lot of the time. We, we're obsessed with getting kids reading and all our attentions into reading and, and numeracy tends to be this, this you know, yeah, it's important, but it, you know, there's a perception that it may be slightly less important than reading. Um, and so with this podcast, we really want to have a look at early development of numeracy and, and what happens in those formative years. And I thought a nice place to start would be, you know, is there a natural sense of number? You know, is this something that kids will do organically? They'll start to count, they'll start to notice, you know, variations in number and, and amount. Yes, well, so we know that children have um, lots of sort of informal, intuitive understanding of number that they bring before they get to any sort of early, early years setting. And so they do start with certain kind of cognitive tools we could think of them as being that allow them to see numerical aspects of the world. Um, so one uh, system, one tool they have allows them to look at magnitudes and understand about representing and comparing approximate magnitudes so they'd be able to know whether a set of 20 items was more or less than a set of 10 items for example mm -hmm. so this gives them um, an approximate sense of the magnitude of different sets um, and then they have another tool they have another cognitive tool which allows them to look at small sets of exact items so to be able to identify one two three items and distinguish them from each other mm. so they bring these tools with them but of course, this doesn't give them the symbolic representations, the number words and the symbols that we use for counting and for representing number. And so being able to exactly represent large numbers is something that can't happen without some input. So children need to be introduced to the count sequence, to the symbols for representing numbers, um, and they need some guidance in order to be able to do that. So there are intuitive, informal, uh, skills that they bring with them, but that's not enough on its own. They need to be introduced to the way that we have um, decided to label and um, represent exact numbers. Um, I, um, I think another thing that's sorry. Uh, do they um, understand? You know, is it just many and few? Do they understand that twelve is more than ten, or fifteen is more than ten, or is that sort of this, you know identification sort of a bit beyond where they're at? Yeah, so it's it's approximate. So how closely a comparison you can make or children can make depends on the ratio between them. Okay. And younger children will only be able to compare. So the young, very youngest children will only be able to compare things that have a ratio of one to two. So they'd be able to distinguish eight from 16 or 10 from 20. And then as children um, grow up and develop, the ratio that you can compare things um, reasonably accurately um, reduces so children will be able to compare things in a ratio of three to four or two to three for example um, and then by the time we get to adulthood those ratios have gone to about eight to nine so we can make those kind of non-symbolic approximate um, comparisons more accurately um, so it's not just a case of more or less it is um, it's determined by the ratio between the, the sets that we're comparing 
Mm. And so those natural cognitive abilities in terms of magnitude, when a child, let's say a child joins a preschool environment at the age of, let's say, the average of three when people's funding comes in, are we, are we expecting a lot of variation in, in the children that come in, be it because of the background of the child, but also because of you know, how children develop at different rates? So we know that there are individual differences. When we look at older children and adults, there are individual differences in um, how closely we can make these kind of comparisons. So how precise this approximate representation is. Um, I think we don't really have enough evidence from children at the age of three about that. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that when children are starting early years, um, really they're, when they're looking to develop their number skills, it's more likely to be the other system that I mentioned. So this idea of being able to represent small numbers exactly, that's the tool that gets them into understanding um, symbols for numbers. So the magnitude representations that we have um, are likely to be helpful and they can be um, part of the tools that children bring with them. But it's really thinking about small quantities and how children learn to connect symbols and number words to small quantities, which is the way in for most children um, when they start learning about number. Do you, I mean, is it possible to distinguish, let's say a, a child starts at um, school at the age of four and their parent, one set of parents have been teaching them all the number, you know, the number symbols and, and really putting a lot of effort into the numeracy stuff and then other parents for whatever reason have not. Is it still possible to see the sort of I don't I don't want to say natural I guess but that's the best word for it the natural ability of the child who perhaps hasn't had the input so there's a couple of interesting things here um so one um idea that we have been able to identify is that some children seem to attend to number naturally more than other children okay. so in research literature this is sometimes referred to as spon spontaneous focusing on numerosity Okay. And so if you ask children, there's a number of little um, tasks that we can use to look at this. So, for example, if you ask children to describe a picture and, the, you know, there might be some animals in the picture and some clouds and trees, some children might spontaneously, without you knowing that you want, you're looking for number, say, oh, there are two clouds and there are three trees. Whereas other children might um, just describe the colour of them or something else or the arrangement. Mm. Um, and other tasks where we ask children to imitate something that an experimenter is doing, a researcher is doing. Um, and some children will pay attention to the number of times that the um, researcher feeds a toy or something like that. Whereas other children won't spontaneously pay attention to number. And what we found is that... Um, how much children spontaneously pay attention to number in a situation where no one's told them to seems to relate to their maths development and their maths achievement both a, a short time later but also quite a few years later as well so it does seem that despite whatever uh, influences children are getting from outside some children are have this natural tendency to notice number and to pay attention to it um, so that certainly there is evidence there that there's something that children bring that maybe help themselves to learn number. Um, but then the other thing, when we look at the sort of home numeracy element, there's actually really mixed evidence there. So yes, parents, there is quite a difference amongst parents in how much they're supporting their children's number. Um, 
And some studies show that there are relationships between this and the children's um, number skills. But actually other studies show that there isn't and it's actually the influence of the early years setting or perhaps the early years setting working with parents that's the strongest influence rather than necessarily what the parents are doing themselves. That's quite a, um, that's, I guess that's quite a, an exciting finding in the sense that in, in, in new, cause a lot of the language findings are that, you know, the home environment is so important and the fact that numeracy may have, you know, maybe less tied to it is, is I guess quite an exciting finding and, and uh, interesting finding that we have. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to give the impression that the home environment isn't important because it is. And we know that demographic factors are really closely associated with um, sort of outcomes in maths. I think perhaps it's that when you're doing the research on this, it's very complicated to um, actually measure accurately what parents are doing. So <laughs> reading, for example, most parents can report with reasonable accuracy um, whether they read to their children at bedtime or not you know? Mm. you know it's quite a simple thing to ask and it's quite a simple thing to record whereas if we're looking at maths activities actually some parents might not recognize that the things that they're doing are mathematical or numerical or they might not even be able to see what the opportunities are to do maths or numerical things with their children um, so you're left with trying to measure things that are perhaps poor proxies and it's quite hard to estimate if you ask to us you know how many times have you played board games with your children in the last <laughs> you know, on average how, how many times a month do you play board games it's actually quite hard to do to measure those kinds of things so i think partly the the mixed evidence might be a measurement difficulty and partly it might be um difficulty with parents perhaps identifying where they can do simple numerical activities and so perhaps if we can help parents identify some of those opportunities, then the home environment could be made to be more of a supportive environment for this early, early maths and number. Um, in some of the studies we've done, we've really, with parents of children who are sort of three to four, many of them, they know about reading to their children. They've had this message come to them ever since their children were born, but very few people have ever said to them, you know, have you thought about doing number things? Here are some really simple things you can do, things you can do around meal times, things you can do when you're going for walks and so on. And so they haven't thought about doing it and they think of maths as being something that happens at school and that their three-year-old's too young for this. Mm. So I think, I think the mixed evidence is not a sign that um, children aren't sensitive and what's happening at home doesn't have an influence. It's, it's more a sign that it's hard to research this and perhaps we need to give parents more inputs in, in, a, in a really simple way that doing maths at home with your child is not complicated, it's not scary, you know, even if you had a poor experience with maths at school, that doesn't mean you can't help your child to count the stairs when you're walking upstairs or really simple things like that. Um, and just it's put me in mind of putting two pizzas out in front of my four kids last night and you know, they, they, the youngest ones were watching how many slices each of them had and to make sure they didn't get left out. I mean, is that, is that Matt, is that home, you know? Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they largely did it themselves, but I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that, does that count as a, as a, some form of home input to that? I yeah, guess. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and that, and then what we want parents to feel confident to sort of perhaps just ask a question or point something out that mm. is building on what the children are naturally noticing and being interested in. And just perhaps helping that a little bit to, to helping the child to think about that in a little different way. Um, 
but noticing these opportunities and supporting children in this way is not easy even early as practitioners find that challenging sometimes so you know to expect this of parents who don't have the training yeah. um, is quite a challenge and so when we do think about talking to parents about home numeracy i think we have to keep it really simple we have to keep it really um fun engaging it's about playing with children it's about um looking at the world around you and just perhaps drawing children's attention to some numerical aspects of the world that and all adults can do that you don't have to have been good at maths yourself to be able to do that it's interesting that the, as you said like the earliest practitioners are, are are trained in this and when when you do get into that environment in terms of what the teacher should be doing i mean there's a wider debate in the eyfs about how much direct instruction and how much sort of facilitated play or, or directed mm-hmm. play um happens or and in de- and indeed like un- not directed play um do you see maths development as happening organically in in unstructured play also being led in structured play and through direct instruction are they are they all as equal as each other is one better than the other how 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 what does that environment look like in a, in a sort of successful maths learning environment yeah, so I think it's that's a really um, it's a really complex question. Mm, sorry, um, yeah. <laughs> everyone's uh, challenge uh, sort of struggling with that at the moment. So within the early years se- sort of sector, and particularly within the UK, there's very little um, sort of rigorous big research evidence. So we can't just go to the research evidence and look at where people have compared all these different approaches and said, look, this one's most successful. So. If we want to look at what research tells us about this, we need to think about what do we know about children's development, maths development, and what would that suggest is the, the ways to go. And then what can we take about from some of the more formal intervention studies that have been done, often in the US context or elsewhere. And, and so, you know, we're trying to draw out what we can infer from these kinds of studies. And I think putting that together suggests that we need balance. So play is so important children can learn so much through play but they're probably not going to get the whole way through in a very unstructured play situation so what they need is they need some kind of guidance they need some kind of structured input either through the play situations themselves or alongside the play situations so that we can help them to build on these intuitive and formal skills they have and actually think about some of the more formal aspects about how we use number, how we represent number. Um, but it, it's got to be appropriate to the child's age and to their point in development. And it's got to be in a way that's engaging and fun. And you can do a lot of quite structured inputs, but through play in the way that you're, the tools that you're, you're the, the manipulatives and the representations and things that you're using with children, that you know it doesn't have to be even structured input doesn't have to be children sitting on a carpet and an adult talking to them or children sitting at a table with with worksheets structured input can happen outside when you're using stones to um, represent how many children there are in each group or whatever it might be you know you can do structured input but in a way that is playful for children and i think this builds on um the best kind of what we know about children's development but also some of the evidence of some of the big curricular um, approaches used in um, the States, like the building blocks approach, where they they incorporate um, some directed teaching, but alongside and in the context of of play situations. And um, with a lot of um, guidance for teachers. 
I guess a good example, like when I've been into UIFS settings, is like uh, the 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 kids might have set up built built a, a house, and the teacher will go and go, oh, how you know what's this house? And they oh, we're gonna wash cars. I said, oh, mm-hmm. how much are you gonna charge me to wash the cars? You know, you, you know, have you got what's the pricing system? And the kids are like, oh, I don't know. How much would you charge? And there's a conversation mm-hmm. about number that's happening. Do we know why that? that unstru- that structured play is a better option or sometimes is a better option than sitting a child down and saying well this is one two three four five six seven eight nine ten these are the number symbols you know this very direct because you know intuitively people say well that's quicker surely it's easier just to tell them rather than this elaborate game approach then other people say well they're not going to they're not one they're not going to sit there because of self-regulation because of metacognition and another is saying well if they're in if it's part of the game, they're going to learn it easier. I mean, as you said, I know this is a difficult question because the research isn't perhaps there yet, but what's the sort of sense there between the two? So I think a lot of it comes about with children's um, kind of experiencing number in lots of different contexts and using lots of different tools to represent number. And also shape is really important here. You know, we're, t- we're focusing on number in the conversation, but actually it, all the sort of issues around spatial skills and shape are just as important and, and can be done in just it's the same way. Mm-hmm. So if children are using things where they're manipulating them, they're, they're combining sets, they're comparing sets, they're, they're, and then they're using number words or symbols to represent those sets, then they're really using um, you know, their whole body. They're, they're really getting involved in the interactions with the tools and they're thinking about number um, in a sort of richer context. Mm-hmm. However, you know, nobody has actually really done a study, to, the, to my knowledge, where they, they have um, encouraged, you know, directly compared these different approaches. So it really is building on what we know about how children sort of learn or, or um, interact in more general contexts, rather than being able to draw on specific studies that, that have compared that. And you mentioned shape and, shape and space and spatial skills there as part of numeracy. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because because it's numeracy, we think of number almost automatically. But you know, the wider context of maths is angles, is 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 mm-hmm. is, is you know, shape, as you say, is how big something is, how small something is. What does it look like? I mean, do is that widely recognised enough that the importance of shape and the importance of space? And um, I guess the second part of that question is: there's a lot of research coming out around spatial abilities and mm-hmm. and how that's perhaps slightly um the the cinderella of 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 maths in the sense that schools don't pay enough attention to it perhaps or or the testing regime doesn't pay enough attention yeah i mean so my i'm my context is within the research um field and i think within research it's really well recognized how important spatial skills are for maths um and Certainly when I go into earlier settings, I see these spatial activities going on all around. Um, so how that feeds into the kind of assessment. Yeah, I guess I'm not the person to uh, yeah. answer that question. But it is clear, isn't it, that spatial ability is now being linked to not not just um, immediate short term maths achievement, but long term achievement mm-hmm. in maths. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so there's a num- we can see sort of obvious areas where the, the maths curriculum has lots of elements of sort of spatial skills and shape knowledge in it. But also, I think there's things going on at a lower level cognitively uh, that the, the 
the processes that you're learning and that you're developing when you're doing kind of spatial activities or you know a building with blocks and all sorts of things like this these are at a low level of sort of processing numerical information helpful so it's not just at the obvious um kind of surface the high level skills but it's also at a, a lower level of sort of cognitive processing that we think that spatial activities help with number representation and manipulating numbers you know the way we we represent numbers is so spatially based whether that's on number lines and things like that but also multi-digit numbers of course have this massive spatial element um, and then when we're thinking about um, operations on number so we're thinking about um, addition and subtraction often we think of those we conceptualize those or visualize those spatially when we think about well which is the set and which is the subset and do i need to add in this situation or take away in the situation and actually so the spatial skills are helping there with actual number processing and not just the fact that parts of the mathematical curriculum has uh, sort of shape and angles and things on it is it is it easy to identify someone who is spatially uh advanced or spatially adept i mean can we have a good idea in a in the sort of structured play environment that you were talking about mm -hmm. before you know how easy is it to spot that someone may not have the language for for math they may not you know be counting to 15 or 20 or whatever the 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 level that is expected but actually can we say oh you know they're manipulating shape very well i mean they seem to have a good mm -hmm. idea of, of 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 space is that easy yeah, so I don't know um, within a sort of practice context, certainly within research, we, we have a ways of like looking at um, block rotation is um, mental rotation is a really important skill. And actually, um, we can see quite differences quite early um, in children's skill with that. Um, but I do think that you can um, you can observe children's engagement with different activities and often that will tell you something about how comfortable and confident they are in the skills with that. So the children who are always drawn to the Lego pile are likely to be really confident with spatial skills, whereas other children may not. And you mentioned language, um, of course, which is really important that you can observe that are children using the right kind of spatial language that suggests that underneath that they have these spatial concepts as well. It's, it's, it's funny because when you're talking about mental block rotation, like it's one of those things I find really difficult, like mm -hmm. to, to, to imagine, especially when you see the box net and they say, yeah. hey, when you, yeah. which, of these, which of these folded up boxes is the right one? And you can do, there's lots of tests online on that. I mean, mm -hmm. is, that, is that a good test of spatial ability? I mean, if I'm scoring three out of 10 on the, on the rotating block mm -hmm. test, does that mean my spatial ability is poor? And I, I don't I, mind you saying if it is. <laughs> I don't know. I do know. I don't know enough about spatial assessment particularly in the early years so i'm probably not the right person to answer that <laughs> that's absolutely fine i'm going to take it that i'm i'm still fine on that um <laughs> in terms of um spotting problems then mm -hmm. we've talked about how the children will possibly be on different developmental trajectories mm -hmm. they they may have different home settings is there a case you know at what point do you think a child may need more input i mean in terms of uh, where they struggle, how soon should, should should it be flagged in an EYFS setting that actually this this child here is is struggling a bit more than perhaps we thought they they should be? I mean, is that something that you can tell straight away? Is that something you have to try several different interventions to the point where you go, okay, well, nothing seems to be working? Um, how does that work essentially? 
So I think there's a couple of things that are important here. So first of all, it's remembering that some of these basic number skills are really complex. So if we look at counting, there is so much involved in learning to count. So it's not just the count sequence. It's knowing how to tag items properly. It's understanding cardinality, what we use counting for, knowing when you can count, knowing what kind of things you can count. So actually trying to work out where a child is and to say that whether a child can count or not is very complex because you need to actually observe across a whole different kinds of situations to see how children are using their counting skills. And we know that context is so important. So if you wanted to know whether a child could add or not, um, there's really nice research showing that the context you ask that question um, has a huge impact on children's success. So if we if we ask if we um, ask addition problems in a very non-verbal sense using concrete items um, and no number words at all, then lots of young children are able to do this. Um, but then when we um, perhaps put it into word form, say you know you've got two pigs and two more pigs, how many pigs are there altogether? You know, some, some children will also be able to do that, but some of the children who could do the non-verbal concrete addition won't be able to do that. And if you take it another step to ask, well, what's two add two? Then again, some of the children will be able to do that, but others won't. So then you have the challenge of saying, well, what does it, who, who can add? Who understands add yeah. addition? Who, who is able to do this? Because, um, if you, if you require children to be able to do it in all contexts before you say they, they truly understand it, then that's um, sort of diminishing the understanding that some children can show when you give them the right supportive context. So I think what I'm going to say is just assessment is so difficult at these early years. Children are developing in at such different rates. They might develop things in different orders from each other, and they might show a skill in one context that they then can't apply in another context until, until later on. So how you then decide whether a child is on track or not is extremely difficult because if there isn't a simple linear sequence of things that they should do this and then this and this and this. And similarly, there isn't a way of simply deciding, can this child count or can't they? Can this child add or can't they? Because the context has so much impact. So I think in the, the early years, uh, trying to, to um, assess children to determine who needs intervention or not is extremely difficult. And we need to think about really rich observations. And the things that would concern me, rather than a child's sort of score on a particular measure, would be, does the child seem to be making progress? Even if it's slow progress, are they making progress? If, you're, if you can observe them closely enough, can you see that they're, they're responding to input that they're getting and that they are slowly moving forward? And does there seem to be any particular gaps or things that they, where you would perhaps expect a child to be able to do something simpler because they can do something more advanced? And then you need to think about, well, what's missing here? Have they, have, have they, um, learn to do something superficially despite not having the underpinning understanding and perhaps you need to go back a few steps to have a look and see if you can provide that. And we know that um, early maths and maths throughout school draws on so many different skills. So there's, there is the understanding about number and mathematical ideas, but there's also, as, as we talked about, spatial skills, language skills, executive function skills, so self-regulation, things like that. And actually children can be struggling with maths in the early years for a whole range of different reasons. And many of these will resolve 
as children mm. develop. And so jumping in with interventions too early, I think um, can be problematic and actually intervening unnecessarily and making a child feel like they're struggling can be do more harm than good. So it's all about, and, and the, the interventions evidence suggests this, it's all about close observation, knowing where a child is at and knowing and being able to help them move a little bit forward. And I think, as I said, if, if you're giving them the standard kind of close observation and intervention that you would, and that you're not seeing them move forward, perhaps that's the point at which you want to think about something a bit more. Um, but it's just not possible to say that by this point, a child should be here with their maths understanding, by this age, the child should be here because it, it, it's so varied and it can be, um, and even simple skills are actually much more complex in what children have to, to develop to get there and they need time to do that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? From, from what you're saying there, like we will make an assumption, you know, on a mark sheet, it will say this child can't count to 20, but actually that they might not be able to, from what you said, like the, the concrete examples, they may be able to do 20 perfectly fine or so it may be a language problem or it may be thinking of, my my second son it may be a self-regulation problem where he gets to eight and just goes now nah, i'm bored now and yeah. wanders over to play something else and we're making judgments on children that are perhaps too complex to make at that age uh, well i think we're actually trying to make simple judgments mm. <laughs> the, the situation is complex and we're trying to reduce that sometimes to a simple judgment and that's the difficulty where actually you know it, it requires a complex assessment to know where children are and that requires looking at them and the way that they use number um, in all different situations so i think the frustrating thing is if you know if you might sit down with a child and ask them to do something and they, they're unable to do it and then two minutes later they're over in the lego box and they're showing exactly the skill that you were looking at yeah. <laughs> you know they've just chosen to apply it in different situations or perhaps with you know in, in a, an environment or a play that situation that they're more comfortable in then they can use it because they see a purpose for it. Whereas when you were sat down with a piece of paper, you know, it didn't seem relevant to them then. How does it work? I mean, I mean, I'm going off slightly off topic because this is to focus on early development, but I mean, the, the shift between EYFS and year one is always talked about as this big mm -hmm. shift. And, and, and often is, there's a shift there where um, concrete physical aspects of, ma of, of maths begin to fade away as you move mm -hmm. up a school. From what you said, that seems that, you know, some of those children will be put into a certain context or labelled in a certain way of a lack of understanding because the, the very tools they use to do maths are suddenly disappearing slightly. Yeah. Is, is that a case where actually they should be able to move on from those concrete objects or, or is there anything wrong with using a concrete object as, as they move through the school? So I, I think we should... Uh, sort of incorporate manipulatives for as, as long as children want them and actually they're useful um, much to higher up primary school with new ideas as well mm. and I think it's what's important is um, helping children to see what this manipulative um, is representing what it is that you're trying to um, use it for and so help that child to make the link between that and perhaps the, the sort of a more abstract way of representing the same idea that you're hoping to move the child along a bit to um, and 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 that sometimes has to be done very gradually so you might you can't just like um, take the manipulative away and expect the child to be able to apply what they were doing with the manipulative into a new situation and it's and this is where um, sort of 
a little bit of structured input alongside the play can help so children start to see you know why am i using this tool and what can what is it representing and and uh, to, to gradually move to a point where they don't need it anymore but i'm in favor of of manipulatives for you know quite far up primary school whenever children need them and it is true we don't want children to rely on them and we need to help children understand how they can move beyond them but sometimes we will count on our fingers sometimes you know <laughs> like no one's taking that opportunity away from us as adults so we shouldn't really be taking it away from children but we should help them to um you know to see how they can think about the same idea or represent the same idea in a different way and i think the transition from reception to key stage one it you know it's so important to remember that some of the children are going into key stage one at only a few weeks older than their classmates were at starting reception. Yeah. So to actually have that, you know, if it was right for the eldest in reception at the beginning of reception, then it should be right for the youngest in reception when you move into key stage one. There, you know, we have a huge age range in children at the beginning of school, and, and we mustn't overlook that and the impact that has and, and allow children to be a bit more fluid as they move from, from um, early years maths into key stage one maths. And I think, and the last thing I just want to say on this is, is it's really important to make sure that the way we're using representations and the way we're using language is consistent. Because one of the most difficult things is children become used to using representations in a certain way and with certain words in reception, and then they move into the next class and suddenly it's a whole new representation and the whole new words, and they won't see the, the links between what they knew and could do before and this new situation. So, so lots of conversations to make sure that we're using language in the same way, wherever we have transitions, you know, earliest transitions, sort of year six to year seven transitions, conversations. So we know that we're using representations and we're using language consistently and we can help children see that the maths is the same, even if it's moving up a little bit. And do they, you know, are children adept at sort of a performative kind of maths where they can say, you know, they've basically learned two plus two is four. They don't really know what that means. But and the same with times tables, you know, six, 12, 18, 24, they can reel it off to you. But how do you know if that's just learned, inf- you know, learned words rather than the mathematical understanding? And lots of people talk about automaticity. Autom- I'll try and say it again, automaticity. <laughs> and, um, it does it matter if, if they don't understand fully that six times six is uh, 36 is it yes um is it if it's in the context of another procedural uh sum i mean it, it, there's a few questions there i know but i'm trying to get into the sense of some children might just be very good at remembering numbers and 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 sums and they may not have fully grasped what that is yeah so i think this is um a really complex um area obviously Ideally, what we want, well, not just ideally, what we want is children to understand the maths that they're doing um, and to come to know these number facts through understanding. So I think one of the things that um, is really important to remember is that being able to automatically retrieve an answer doesn't mean you ever had to rote learn that answer. So you can come to know your number facts, you can come to know your times tables through um, experiencing you know, repeated opportunities to do those sums. So, you know, within the context of addition, for example, you know, if children spend lots of time using manipulatives to combine sets of two and two, and then perhaps do it on a number line and perhaps do it in a five frame or a 10 frame, 
over time, over these experiences, they will come to know what the answer, they will come to know that two add two is four without ever having to rote learn that. So that means that you haven't got this separation between the number fact and the understanding because they've come to learn the fact through these rich experiences. And I think one of the concerns I have about the automaticity of number facts in early years is that this makes people think that we have to go through a rote learning and that we have to go via the abstract written straight away. And that's the only way of children getting to automaticity. I think with the right kind of rich experiences, lots of early years children may be able to get to a point where they can retrieve some of these number facts. And for some children that will be totally appropriate. But if we make it too much of a target for all children, then it might lead to the rote learned approach. And that might will be too soon. And for some children, it will be this separation between, um, you know, I can say two add two is four, but I have no sense of what that means. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's just not helpful at all going forwards. So you can get to retrieval through rich experiences. And with timetables, you can do it through like different mental strategies to work out the answers. It doesn't have to be rote learning. Some children like rote learning and for times tables, you know, for some children that that's a, a strategy they're happy with. But for lots of children, doing it through um, a variety of experiences with the number fact is, is much better because they end up being able to retrieve it, but also being able to understand it. And I guess that brings me to sort of my last question, which is that with literacy, we have these very clear building blocks, you know, it's heavily researched, heavily invested in, and there's a pathway that seems relatively simple to follow. You know, we go through step one, step two, step three, and we have a reader. There's our interpretations of how, you know, how uh, effective that route is, but there is a clear route for people to pass. Mm -hmm. There doesn't seem to be a clear route for maths. There doesn't seem to be as much investment for maths in terms of research. And, and as much attention, I guess, on, on it, um, I guess my question there is, why is that? And do you think that there will ever be a way of creating a, as clear a structure for maths as there is for reading? So I, I think that it is changing within research. So I, when I first got into maths research, my interest was drawn because nobody, you know, there was so much less of it yeah. and research on reading or language. Um, and within research, there's just been this explosion in the last 20 years. There's so much more now than there was um, in the 90s, um, early 2000s. Um, but it is true that it, it doesn't seem to, it's still not of the, the scale of the investment in research on, on reading and language. Um, I don't think we will ever have a, such a simple kind of approach and be able to say that these are the things that you need to do and these are the order and, and that you can get to a maths. And the reason for that is I think there's just so many skills and there's so many aspects of math. So not wanting to diminish reading, because obviously there are, you know, there's much more to reading than decoding. Um, but I think with maths, it's even broader than that. And, um, you know, we need to think about numbers. There's so many different aspects of numbers, the cardinal aspects, there's ordinal aspects, there's shape, there's space, there's so much going on there that there is never going to be we're not going to find a simple, we're not going to find our phonics equivalent where there's one simple approach and we can say, follow this sequence. And then for most children, they'll get there. It's always going to be much more complex. And I think children develop in different orders. This is the real challenge with maths, not just that children go at different rates, but some children might develop confidence with certain aspects of maths before others. 
And so that makes it very difficult to have any kind of linear trajectory where you, you kind of say this is where a child is for maths. Now you could do those kind of trajectories for smaller, more focused topics within maths, but you're not going to be able to have one overarching, you know, sort of the equivalent of a reading scheme for maths. I think that's quite a, uh, a freeing concept for teachers because it does put the control back to teachers and it does allow teachers to, to react to the child in front of them, which yeah. from what you said across this podcast is really important to react yeah. to the child. Definitely. And I, that's the one thing that I, you know, when I go and talk to teachers and inset days and things, you know, if someone's selling you a silver bullet for maths, then don't buy it because it, it's just not going to exist. You know, it's complex. It requires so much expertise and knowledge in the part of the teacher and understanding of the child and where they are at and thinking about how, what they know, what they bring to a mathematical situation and how you can just perhaps draw out more, you know, point them in a new direction to go a little bit further along. Camilla, thank you very much. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.